Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, we discuss how sustainability and climate change are increasingly a business imperative. There's a definite increased focus on sustainability. What they're doing, which is good for the planet, was also good for their business and had major advantages. Many people can start seeing regulations coming around carbon pricing, plastic usage, uh, energy usage. You can just see them emerging. And so many people are trying to get onto it now or getting ahead of the curve before they have some of these additional risks, regulations or social expectations added to them. And we also look at how investor expectations have changed. We're thinking more about we and less just about me. Um, you know, the companies know that it's not just about their logo, the sum of all the decisions could impact the brand. That's all coming up on the program when we discover what happens next. Well, looking after the world we live in for future generations is not just important to communities and society at large, but also to business as well. Embedding ESG or environmental, social and governance principles into a company's strategy has become a business imperative. To look at this more closely, I spoke to independent ESG advisor Michael Gabadou and Adrian King, partner in charge climate change and sustainability, KPMG Australia. Michael Gabadou, Adrian King, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hello, Bernard. Hello, Bernard. Great to be here. Michael, I'll start with you. It appears that business is increasingly focused on sustainability in the way they're operating. What's been driving that trend? Is it market forces or something else? Um, you're right, Bernard. There's a, a definite increased focus on sustainability. I would say it's been a very progressive journey. I mean, if, if you look at uh, early adopters, you know, who got onto sustainability 20, 30 years ago, they had a sort of awakening of the damage we're doing to the planet and realised we had to change the model. But I would say that very early, they also realised that what they're doing, which is good for the planet, was also good for their business and, you know, had major advantages uh, in regards to cutting waste and uh, uh, having a better financial performance, uh, brand positioning, new products, etc. I think that we're, where we are now to be different, so all those benefits are still there for companies that um, start on the sustainability journey. Adrian, what's your view on this? I totally agree, and I see this through typically two different drivers. The first is the whole range of opportunity drivers that Michael has just sort of alluded to, which is where uh, companies are looking to differentiate their products or improve their products. The other side, which is the risk regulation type side, um, is really probably one of the, the things that's starting to uh, drive action at the moment. Uh, and it's because even if um, regulations aren't in place now, many people can start seeing regulations coming, whether that's around carbon pricing, plastic usage, uh, energy usage, you can just see them emerging. And so many people are trying to get onto it uh, now or getting ahead of the curve before they have some of these additional either risks, regulations or social expectations uh, added to them. Adrian, I'll stay with you. Can you give us some examples of how clients or companies 
have embedded ESG to influence their business strategy. Yeah, sure. And actually, there's, there's, there's lots and there's lots of ways of doing this. Obviously, you can do it through operations, through branding, through people. But the ones I like the most are actually where organizations and companies are changing their products. Let me give you two examples. Uh, the first one would be someone like Siemens, who have literally for, for many years now been analyzing their products and putting them into a either category of environmental portfolio or another portfolio. And that's really then enabled them to increase and improve the number that are in that environmental portfolio. And I think they're up to about 44%, for example, now. So it enables them to be producing and focus on more efficient products, which obviously gives them an advantage. The other example I would give is uh, is the banks. Um, they haven't quite got to the stage of analyzing all of their portfolio of debt and investments, but they have been focused on increasing and, and selling more uh, products which are either green or sustainable and at the same time uh, looking at their more challenged areas and reducing their exposures to uh, certain portfolios, the fossil fuel portfolio being, being the obvious one. I'm going to throw this open to both of you. Uh, do you think there's been a rise in the S for sustainability in ESG in the wake of COVID? And if so, why? Adrian? Absolutely. Um, COVID, what it's done is really heightened our awareness of the pace of change, I think. And what we've seen through that rapid amount of volatility that we had is that well-performing ESG stocks, for example, uh, are more resilient uh, and probably because they just have a slightly longer time horizon and COVID in particular has, uh, has raised the awareness and as, as a result raised the expectations and requirements, particularly of investors, to make sure their portfolios are full of good ESG performers. Um, I would say that there's two elements which have really been brought back centre stage through COVID. The first one, of course, is science. And we hear about it all the time, the, the way, you know, all the decisions have been made and some major decisions, which we never thought possible 18 months ago, uh, have been made on, on a uh, base of scientific advice. So, of course, with sustainability and climate change, there's a very strong body of evidence, a scientific body of evidence that... Uh, that we should listen to and we need to hope that uh, we hear this voice going forward. So, Adrian, would you say that sustainability reporting was once considered to be niche, but it's now mainstream and becoming integral to the way a company operates? Yes, absolutely. We've been tracking this at KPMG for almost 30 years. Uh, and I can tell you that back in 1993, there was only 12% companies doing sustainability reporting. Uh, we did the survey again last year. Uh, and with a, a population of over 52 countries, and the average was 80%. And if you just looked at the largest 250 companies in the world, uh, we're up to numbers of about 96%. So absolutely, uh, I think it's shifted from niche, like you say, through to expected and mainstream. What are the key issues and challenges that boards need to consider and be aware of when adopting an ESG framework? So I, I see, um, I, I guess there's a lot of them, but uh, let me focus on the three ones I would really prioritize. The first one, it has to be tailored to the organization and the industry in which they operate and the geographies in which they operate, because the ESG risks are different across all those different uh, dimensions. The second one is it does need to be honest and balanced. A board doesn't want to get into the space of greenwashing where they're only telling the good stories, the good news stories. Every organization has challenges, and um, the more those are 
highlighted and faced into, uh, the more credible, actually, the organisation uh, is typically uh, seen as. And then the third one, I would say, is uh, just the accuracy of any of the internal or external performance uh, information that they are getting. The systems around ESG are significantly less mature than financial systems. And so they really do need to make sure that they are using the full suite of audit or verification type processes to ensure that they are actually seeing the accurate picture so they can make appropriate decisions. Michael, do you have views on what boards really need to be focused on? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, as we discussed earlier, directors have responsibility in regard to risk assessment, scenario building and understanding you know, the resilience of their business, as well as opportunities that climate change could offer to their uh, business. A couple of dimensions which boards need to follow, which are actually the responsibility of the executive team more than the board. External communication, you know, to be genuine, to be open and to be well controlled because um, sustainability and ESG have a, a, a fairly strong moral dimension and you can lose your reputation very quickly by a slight overstatement, you know, which would have been picked up. But the second one, which I think is even more important, is the internal dimension of how ESG is rolled out and how the executive team is going to carry their internal communication, lead staff engagement and empowerment, uh, genuine inclusions of environmental and social dimensions in the values of the business. And the reason I'm saying that is that uh, to be successful is all going to hinge on how well the internal execution is done it needs to be seen as genuine, but it will be eventually action throughout the organisation and that will depend on how well the, the, the teams are engaged on that dimension. So that's critical for me for a board to track that because that will be the, the dimension that will drive success or failure. Michael Gabadou, Adrian King, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Adopting ESG factors into business strategy is becoming more and more the norm. But what about investors and their expectations? For more on this, I caught up with Nicolette Buller, Executive Manager, Policy and Standards at the Responsible Investment Association, Australasia. Nicolette Buller, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bernard. It's great to be here. You, of course, have a deep understanding of sustainability, finance and economics and how these areas intersect with business and investors. How have standards in this area changed to involve more rigour and accountability for business? Mm, so for years now, we've seen various voluntary standards and certification out there that help consumers identify companies that are committed to things like environmental sustainability and human rights. But consumers are now thinking about asking questions about how their investments, that's their retirement money and their savings, are being put to work for the people and planet. And I reflect back, we had in the 90s, we had free-range eggs. We had the Forest Stewardship Council certified office paper in the 2000s. And this decade, consumers are starting to demand superannuation. That's free of fossil fuels and tobacco and other harmful things like controversial weapons. And that consumer demand is backed by new standards and laws emerging all over the globe, uh, helping investors analyse social and environmental performance. 
where I sit in working in policy, I'm seeing the EU coming out with new standards, emerging on sustainable finance disclosures and companies' sustainability performance. And even in New Zealand, there's soon to be mandatory disclosure requirements around climate risk. Here in Australia, companies have a new focus on supply chain risk, which has been brought about through the introduction of the Commonwealth's Modern Slavery Act. So new standards are emerging and they're not just hard standards, Bernard. There's also normative ones, meaning that they're soft laws. They're Hmm. things like stewardship codes and NGO or industry ratings for investors and company performance. And um, where I'm working with uh, super funds and fund managers, I'm seeing a real real step up in collective engagement of companies by super funds, demanding better disclosures on climate risk. And they want the evidence about how companies' strategies are now aligning goods and services with you know, this net zero balance sheet within the next 18, 19, 20 years, mid-century. And really new is seeing super funds directly lobbying lawmakers, uh, such as state governments, for example, around the inadequacy of laws that don't respect free, prior and informed consent. So yes, there are many new and formal and informal ways that standards of corporate and investor accountability are coming to bear. From your perspective, are you seeing a shift by business to further embrace ESG principles in how they operate? And what is driving this shift? Yes, yes is the answer. But (laughs) it's important first to unpack ESG from responsible investing. So environmental, social and governance factors or ESG is the foundation of responsible investing, but there's more to RI, responsible investing. Mostly we're talking about how companies are operated and managed. So we're looking for how they're addressing maybe bribery and corruption in supply chains, paying employees for domestic violence leave, or maybe even checking there's some gender and cultural diversity in senior management and boards. So then when we talk about the sustainability of a company, we're talking about, yes, the ESG factors, but also funds and companies that have sustainability as their objectives. So that's the difference and it's an important one to make. And you asked what's driving them. Um, The drivers, the first one is a recognition that companies that take into account ESG factors in risk and opportunity management are just simply better companies to invest in. We've got study after study that show that these companies outperform the others over the long term and they can weather the shocks and strains of things like markets, pandemics and and even natural disasters. And what's driving the second group of um, company movements into these things such as sustainability and impact themes is a recognition that companies and finance as part of that has a role to play into contributing to the solutions for our natural and social systems and they desperately need that. Nicolette, there's been a lot of talk about what must be done to address climate change and sustainability. And during COVID, of course, we directly saw how less air travel contributed positively to reducing global emissions, for example. Do you think that COVID has had a positive effect on how people view possible solutions? And do you think COVID and lockdowns have supported the call for more real action on this front? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I've been giving up my privacy to check in at every retail and medical facility. And I'm thinking, what is that about? And I think it's, I think what's happened is we're thinking more about we and less just about me. Um, And that's, that's not a new tune, but I'm hearing it much louder played and on more channels when it comes to companies. 
Um, you know, the companies know that it's not just about their logo. It's the sum of all the decisions from headquarters to call centres and, you know, even contractors. Any decision in that, in that group of people can impact the brand. And so I think in some ways, you know, COVID's helped businesses sort of sharpen their focus on this interdependency concept. And, and with laws like uh, I mentioned around modern slavery and even the EU and the New Zealand's mandatory climate risk disclosures, that impacts Australian businesses too. And, you know, they're tuning into and starting to pick up on the pace of seeing themselves as intermeshed in complex systems. Um, and look, climate change is one issue which continues to be front and centre for many Australians. But I don't think we should forget that before COVID, we already had quite a significant momentum and call for meaningful action coming from Australians. And that was brought about because of the devastating bushfire season. So I think that's probably the best response I can give to that question. Yes, but climate change um, has been front and centre for a while. Nicola, do you see an increased appetite for your investor members really wanting to look at the mechanics of their investments to understand how their managers and investee companies are implementing ESG into their strategy? Absolutely. In this decade, we've moved from the tell me to show me phase. And uh, any investment manager who's selling their product to a super fund have to be able to confidently extol the virtues of their ESG qualities in their products. And it's not just ESG, but it's also sustainability objectives or the real world outcomes you can expect from that investment. So yes, there is definitely an increased investor appetite for better and more meaningful, I'd say reliable and relevant disclosures from trustee companies. Trust obviously is very important to business. So how is good ESG practice helping to build trust with your members and their stakeholders? Do you have any examples from the companies that you work with? Yeah, recently I've been reading article after article about greenwashing. This phenomenon, real or perceived, is a real problem and it's attracted a lot of attention from regulators and not just in Australia. I'm also seeing this in New Zealand and I think that's kind of what's underpinned some of the disclosure laws coming out of the EU. So quarter good ESG assessment and credible sustainability claims, in my opinion, is aggressive transparency because without it, you can't make good informed decisions. And companies that have embraced this are likely to be the ones that are well on the way to understanding and managing ESG risks and opportunities already. So one example is uh, we've got a over a thousand reports now on the modern slavery report register, which is fantastic. Of course, it's not all about the numbers, it's about the quality of these reports. And to your point about an example, I think a company that's likely to have a high level of trust with consumers and employees and regulators and all those other stakeholders are the ones that find and report on instances of possible or actual slavery in their supply chains. Otherwise, uh, if you see a report that has a clean record, how do you know whether those managers are just good risk managers or they're not comfortable to disclose what they've really found? Nicola, I love your term, aggressive transparency. It seems that we've, we've moved from saying just benign transparency to aggressive transparency. Can you explain that just a little bit more? I love the term. Yeah, so we are living in a place where we are bombarded with information. And it, we're increasingly relying on third parties to help us make 
inform decisions or at least channel us towards the things that we think we want to consume as citizens, as consumers. Um, and these are some very powerful third-party platforms that are doing this with and for us. Like the heart tick when you're buying something at a supermarket. Indeed, or even some of the apps that yeah. you create an avatar and it suggests that you might like this product mm. now because you've previously chosen something else. So in investor land, we don't want just any transparency. We really want data that's, that's meaningful, that's reliable and that's relevant. And if we have these, then I think consumers will be in a better position to make choices that align with their values, like you do when you put your kid in a school or you go to the supermarket and you do buy the, the free-range eggs. The same thing happens in um, goods and services and other products, including superannuation and banking now. Nicolette, we're here now in 2021. Where do you see your members moving to in the next few years? Will we have exponential development in the corporate landscape and ESG adoption? Yes, well, I've coined 2020 the decade of intent. It's a bold one, but there it is. Um, I think our members are getting more courageous and more skilled at calling out bad behaviours. So they're taking action not only to spell it out, but to follow through on the consequences of companies not responding even voting on uh, executive employment that's linked to things like that rapid decarbonisation that we need on the balance sheet by 2050. Remember, investors uh, also know that companies that manage ESG opportunities well um, are just better investments all round. So I think companies are going to be allocating capital towards those assets and those enterprises that design and manufacture and distribute those products that contribute to the solutions that we need in society. You know, the, the secure work, um, restoring the health and the diversity of our natural systems, and you know, even reducing inequalities in society. That's where I think you're gonna see uh, this exponential development and deepening of ESG adoption across, uh, across companies in Australia. Nicolette Buller, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Thanks, Bernard. I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next. And now it's that time in the program for something a little bit different where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and the resident demographer, Bernard Salt. Bernard, I thought what Nicolette had to say about greenwashing and the implementation of standards was really interesting. I, I did too, Whitney. This was the idea that we seem to have moved as a society, certainly as a business community, from uh, tell me uh, about the ethics of your business and your green credentials to not just show me, but also prove it. So, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's a, a sign of the times. We're uh, more thorough, more demanding. Uh, we need to see evidence. We need to see proof. And, and not just business to business, but also consumers, stakeholders, and importantly, employees. It's your own employees that will hold you to standard these days. And show me, prove it, document evidence that you are um, doing what you say you are doing and promoting what you're doing. We want to see that, that consistency of ethics being proven today. 
And that um, goes to another point that Nicolette said about how when she coined the phrase Investorland, I can I can hear that in a Bernard Salt column coming up. Um, in in Investorland, investors are more courageous and more bold. Well, again, I, I loved her term. I loved her boldness in inventing a term or a place called <laughs> Investorland. I, what I do you reckon it is? Well, Investorland <laughs> is somewhere on planet Earth. It's somewhere near Mountain of Debt. It's got Sea of Pain and the Valley of Despair. I love this <laughs> merging of geography and, and the financial world. But um, I, I agree, the inhabitants of Investorland um, are becoming far more courageous, far more demanding. And I think uh, Nicolette actually made reference to engaging with government uh, and engaging with other business, that um, they are insisting on certain standards and using their position, as opposed to ensure that uh, these ESG matters are progressed in society. You have to admire their courage. You use the word courageous, and I think that's exactly what it is. And Adrian also had some new insights around how ESG reporting for business has gone from what was once seen as niche um, to really business as usual. Very much so. And in fact, he cited, I think, a KPMG survey, and he made reference to the proportion of global businesses that were now reporting on sustainability, an extraordinarily high proportion. It didn't occur to me just at the time of the interview, but I thought, who wouldn't? You know, what global business, what national business in Australia would not actually report on sustainability or ESG matters? This has become so accepted, so business as usual, uh, that I find it very hard to fathom why this would not be reported upon. And certainly boards should be asking that question. And so should and would, I imagine, employees as well, to say nothing of customers and suppliers. It's, um, it's integral to doing business these days, I would have thought. All right. Well, that's all for the program. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts.